change everything the way you were told and, um, and still not get it right. Uh, still have those, uh, those unexpected lows in the middle of the day, in the middle of work or in a social gathering that's going to um, be awkward, that's going to ruin your moment um, uh, or be at work when you don't want anybody else to find out that you have diabetes, let alone that you're having a severe <laughs> reaction. Um, you know, it could be frustrating that you think that you, you know, really became an expert in carb counting and you could still go to a restaurant and get it wrong. Um, uh, or, you know, having, uh, you know, in some cases, complications when people who've had diabetes for a very long time, uh, again, despite trying. So uh, I think those are the more um, uh, day-to-day frustration um, that comes to mind. Um, you know, sometimes it's, um, uh, you, you wonder why you would have to deal with it. Uh, you know, there's, I think we see it more in adolescence or even people go through phases of wanting to give up and not having to deal with it, or at least maybe on a, have a break from it, even for a day, even for hours. Uh, but the reality is, uh, we never get a break from it. It's always there. So I think that's the most frustrating part. So, um, Dr. Mislavi, would you be willing to share a more recent incident where you had a low, totally unexpected, and it was something that um, was very inconvenient any time in the past year, like a real situation? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I think for me, the, um, the, the most sort of challenging lows if they, is if they happen in the middle of the night. Um, just because I guess um, a lot of people can relate to that. And, you know, you wake up and you feel awful and you're trying to uh, you know, raise your blood sugar as soon as possible because you think you're going to faint or you're going to have a seizure. Um, then you're overcorrected and then you're high in the morning. And it basically is a, a, a sort of phenomena that it, it ruins your entire day, the next day, because you're, then you're struggling with the highs and then you're low again, then you're high again. So um, it's, uh, I would say that's been um, my, my latest experience of um, just miscalculating um, a, like a dinner at a restaurant and, and then finding myself at 2.2 and three o'clock in the morning uh, and uh, trying to get to the kitchen and trying to just basically eat everything in the fridge to raise my sugar. Cause as everybody knows, if it, it just, it feels awful to, to be that low. And, um, and then, yeah, and then you feel, you feel off the next day, you feel that you're not yourself, you feel weak. Um, so I would say that was the, the most recent uh, incident I've had. And I know you weren't diagnosed as a kid. Um, would you be willing to talk about when you were diagnosed and how um, you reacted, um, what it was like for you, your diagnosis story? Uh, sure. So I was diagnosed at 21. Um, and I was actually um, preparing to get into med school at that point. And it was a summer that I was studying a lot. Um, and, uh, and strangely enough, I was volunteering in a diabetes center in, uh, in Montreal. Um, in, in Montreal General Hospital, and I was working with an endocrinologist who later became my endocrinologist. Um, and uh, so I, I just had all the symptoms of losing weight and being very thirsty and um, waking up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, uh, blurry vision. Um, and then at some point, I just decided that I need to go. And, and, uh, and initially, the, my, the doctor that I saw in a walk-in clinic uh, thought that I was too old to be type 1. So I was started on metformin for type 2 diabetes and then um, uh, surely I felt really sick and I ended up in emergency room and I met my endocrinologist Dr. Markovitz um, who just came and basically injected me with insulin right there and then um, and then that's the path and the journey started uh, right from there. 
but it was interesting because I ended up uh, working with them. I ended up doing research with them. Um, and then she obviously was a big influencer for me to go into endocrinology because uh, both of interest and also being able to relate to patients uh, personally. Okay. Um, all right. So question number two, what do you worry about the most um, with regard to living with diabetes? Worry, I mean, when I talk about worry, it could be long-term, 20 years from now, but what, what are your biggest worries? Um, I, I would say, you know, I, I think, I guess as a, uh, as a young person, uh, you know, having, going through pregnancy, having children, um, I know, I know that I have so many patients that they are, they're fantastic, they're, they go through it with no problem, but it's always a worry because um, things are a little bit more, you know, you have to be really, really, really disciplined uh, at that time. And also, I think everybody thinks about complications. The more you know um, about something, the, you know, the more sometimes it worries you that, um, you know, what if things happen? What if I can't see? What if I'm going to have uh, nerve damage? What if I have heart disease? Um, you know, what that would mean for me as um, a physician, uh, you know, and um, as a, how can I be there for my, my family? How can I be there for my parents if I, something happens to me or uh, for a partner or, or as a mother or all of that? So um, those are things that definitely cross, cross my mind. Um, and then on a day-to-day -day basis, you, you know, you still worry about um, having those, you know, having had diabetes for so long, having a, a low when you're not, when you least expect it, something bad happening, having a seizure, uh, um, for example, even at work. Um, so uh, I guess those are those are the main things that um, that comes to my mind. Okay. And you just mentioned um, work, something happening at work. Can you tell us a story about work, maybe when you were seeing a patient or, you know, giving a talk or a lecture or something where, you know, obviously something unexpected happened and how you were able to, um, you know, adjust to what was going on and treat? Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, yeah, so I guess um, uh, you learn over time to plan. Um, so every time if I'm doing a talk or if I'm somewhere that I know I won't be able to, you know, kind of check my blood sugar, I would um, not eat carbs before so that I don't need insulin, so that I don't need to be worried about being high or low. Um, and then it has happened, uh, for example, during residency of being on call sometimes for 36 hours, um, not even having a chance to eat, to suddenly feel like you're going to hit the floor and having a low when someone is talking to you and all your, you're just dripping sweat and shaking from being low, but then you don't want to be that resident that says that, Oh, wait a minute, I'm just going to go and get food. You just, you know, try to push through it and um, try to quickly find some kind of sugar and, and somewhere in the emergency room to, to eat, to go back to work again. So um, I would say my, my biggest challenge um, as a, as a diabetic was during residency. Um, just because you have to be, you have to perform, you have to um, be on the ball, you have to not show any kind of weakness, um, you have to be there for other people. Um, so there's no time to be there for yourself. So and, and long hours, um, not not a lot of sleeping, um, sometimes even no access to food. Um, so I would say that those were the most challenging challenging times. Okay, and. To what extent have you been discriminated against? So you're a doctor, obviously, so you have a very prestigious you know, profession, but being type one, can you remember times either um, professionally or academically or, or personally that you've been discriminated because you were type one? 
Um, I wouldn't say discriminated, but I would, um, I guess when, you know, if, when people know, um, like coworkers and, uh, then they, then, you, you know, they just sort of, um, and I think a lot of it, a lot, a lot of the times has been a positive thing has been that out of care, um, you know, just to make sure that they, you know, they kind of be like, Oh, did you forget to make sure you get your dinner or for example, before your call shift or, um, you know, even a lot of the nurses would, if they knew, they would make sure they always have candy sometimes when I did my intense uh, ICU training. Now, so it, it, I wouldn't say discriminated, but sometimes I think, you know, it's, it's bound to happen that you feel judged, um, that you feel that maybe it's a disability, um, uh, maybe that you, you know, if, that you're, you're kind of looked at, um, uh, yes, like, you know, you're, you're offering something, but at the same time, um, people kind of look, look at you differently because, um, it's considered uh, a weakness. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that does happen. And I think it's almost impossible to go through, uh, entire life, not feeling that way, uh, whether it's from colleagues or, uh, from friends or even from family. Okay. Um, and question number three, before I open it up to the other audience submitted questions, um, you might have already answered this, but if there's any additional points you want to make, um, what, what is your greatest fear about having type one? Uh, I, I think it's more, um, it's more the down, the long-term, um, I would say complications, um, because, you know, nothing, no one is has perfect, you know, you, you, you're, we're all bound to make mistakes and, and things happen. Um, and, uh, we know the, we know how it is with long having diabetes for so long. Um, so yeah, so they worry me They're They're in the back of my mind. Um, as I said, just for, not just for myself, but also being able to be there for my patients and, uh, be able to, um, be there for my family. So that's, I would say this the biggest fear. Okay. Um, so we actually had a follow up question from Katie um, when you were talking about your residency and she asked how did you manage those challenges when you were on residency? Um, so I think a lot of it is preparation um, so maybe the first few calls I did I didn't know better so um, you know I went in you know thinking it'll be okay and you know just now then after a while you kind of realize that okay this is your body's response to it so you know everybody's body would respond differently but you know for example if you don't sleep um, your blood sugars will be higher than, than usual. Or on the other hand, if you're not sleeping, but you're on your, on your feed, you're, you might need less insulin. Um, so it's just adjusting that, making sure you eat before, making sure you have enough protein and fat before um, to, to be able to sustain your blood sugar. Hydration is really important uh, throughout. Uh, so, and then really recovering um, after. Um, so, you know, after the first uh, few times I did it, I, learned that you know it's all about um and as i said diabetes is like a part-time job you have to plan you constantly have to plan everything you have to do so then it was planning ahead before a challenging call shift and and making sure that mentally physically uh, i was ready for it okay all right um i'm going to move into some of the questions that were submitted by our audience um, and again i'll ask the questions if you feel like they're medically related you can go ahead and pass um, the first one is from an anonymous person. How do you deal with assumptions and judgment from non-diabetics? For example, peers, family, colleagues, and even doctors regarding your diabetes. Um, so I think it's a little bit different um, depending on uh, what 
when you developed, when you've had diabetes. Um, so my experience has been that, uh, you know, when, if you were diagnosed as a child, um, you're maybe, maybe those assumptions are a little bit more, uh, uh, you feel it more or you think about it more. For example, I have a lot of colleagues who are physicians, not endocrinologists, but they're physicians and have diabetes. And if they, let's say they were my, one of my good friends was diagnosed when he was six. And when we were, when we're out, he's always, um, under the assumption that everybody around him will know that he's injecting insulin. And so he would always have to leave and go to the bathroom. Whereas I was diagnosed at 21. So for me, I just inject at the table and I've noticed that trend with, um, my patients as well. Um, it's sort of what you were used to. Um, and, you know, so I think that's one of the biggest assumptions uh, you know, sometimes people, you know, see you out and you're checking your blood sugar or you're giving insulin or you're on a pump and you're, and then they're, they they do not know what it is. Um, and then I think, you know, it's just being comfortable with, um, what you have and what you have to do. And at the end of the day, you have to do things for yourself and for your health. Um, sometimes it's about demystifying things for other people, whether it's educating your peers and colleagues about what it is um, so that they don't judge and they, they understand it better. Because sometimes uh, assumptions is because of lack of knowledge about something. Um, and then, you know, and sometimes there are those unfortunate situations that, you know, people judge and they, they think, uh, they don't think about it, think about it as a, as a, is a defect or a flaw. Uh, and uh, you, I think you just have to kind of walk away from that. It's, it's sometimes a shame to have that. Uh, but I think that goes with a lot of other chronic illnesses as well. Um, and uh, we just have to uh, turn away from it and, and live our life the best we can. You know, I think one of the advantages that you have and I have is that being in medicine, people are much more um, understanding, you know, they're much more tolerant. They, uh, they try to learn a little, a little about it. And outside of medicine, if you can, you know, think of times outside of being with people who in, are in healthcare, um, are there times where you really feel like uh, you're being singled out or that you can tell that people are treating you or thinking about you differently? Um, yes, uh, sometimes like the non-medical, maybe there, there might be a little bit of um, that, but I find, um, you know, I, I think most of the time I've been able to um, get through it by sort of demystifying it for, for people. Like if it was an issue, um, uh, it just sort of, uh, you know, it's something that it's a, it's a new norm uh, for me. So that's, you know, my life would be different from, let's say, that person's life, but then this is how I have to do it. And it's just more kind of educating people about it. Um, and that's what I've done in the past um, uh, to, to deal with it. Okay. Um, a second part to the anonymous question, how do you remain positive when it feels so unfair to have to deal with this illness when it's inconvenient and expensive? I wish I could be carefree sometimes, but it requires constant management. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And as I said, there's always good days and bad days. Um, so yeah, I think everybody, including me, I have days that I feel like this is so unfair having to think about it, having to manage it, sometimes failing at managing it. Um, things are very expensive and, you know, a lot of the, the new things are not covered. Um, so yes, it's for sure unfair. You know, I think one thing to think about is that um, it, you know? Is to maybe take a step back and look at um, in comparison to other chronic problems, for example, you know. Uh, and I guess maybe it is a little bit um, uh, easier when you 
know or you see other people with other problems or other chronic problems and you see what they're going through. Uh, so, you know, when I see patients that have multiple sclerosis, for example, um, and they're on, you know, very, very um, aggressive medications with the horrible side effects uh, that they're on wheelchair at their in their thirties um, and uh, that there's no cure. And there's, you know, even if they manage it, um, they go through pregnancies with uh, difficulties, then, you know, I would say, well, in perspective, comparing to that, and that's an autoimmune disease as well. And then maybe it's not that bad. Um, maybe, you know, and, and uh, there's a lot of infrastructure research um, that's going through a diabetes, especially type one diabetes right now. And I think when, you, when I see that there is a lot of hope there, um, I hope that this will be cured in our lifetime um, and hope that even in comparing to five years ago, comparing to 10 years ago, even comparing to two years ago, how much um, the technology and uh, medical field has improved in dealing with diabetes, um, I, you know, that it helps uh, for sure. I mean, even 10 years ago, if you walk in a dialysis ward, nine out of 10 were type one or type two diabetics. Now you might only see one or two. And the reason is diabetes is so well managed now. Uh, people, you know, they, they seek out uh, good doctors, they, they take care of themselves. And I think that gives us a glimpse of hope that we could have a normal life expectancy and have a good quality of life. Um, yes, with the frustration of having to manage things, um, uh, but, uh, you know, at least we, we could have a, a, you know, a very good quality of life despite that. Okay. Um, we have a question from Alan. Do you have an exercise routine? And if so, how do you manage blood sugars, including pre, during, and post-workouts? Um, so yes, I do. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm fairly active. Um, exercise and uh, type 1 diabetes is a very interesting field. Um, so it depends, I would say, on the type of exercise. Um, so for example, um, exercise that's an aerobic exercise, which is a lot of cardiovascular training, let's say running or uh, biking. So they tend to lower uh, the blood sugar. Um, so I usually um, you know, eat something that's uh, maybe 15 grams of carb and has enough protein and fat to sustain the blood, blood sugar, sugar and then give 30, 40% less insulin and then do the cardio workout, knowing that I will go lower during that workout. I usually um, have my meter with me um, if I go for a run or if I go for a long uh, cardiovascular training, uh, just in case if I feel off that I'll be able to check my sugar. Um, and then post cardio workout, uh, also you tend to, you know, kind of go on a lower side. So you have to make sure you fuel yourself with, uh, with protein, um, anaerobic exercise, which is weight training is, um, is the opposite. So people tend to go high during anaerobic exercise because you're using your big muscles and you're breaking down glycogen. Um, so, so for example, hockey players, they tend to go high both from kind of the uh, the, the, the whole stimulus of being at, um, uh, in the game, but also breaking down, like they're using their legs or breaking down huge muscles, uh, or, you know, when you're doing huge heavy lifting, um, or uh, things like spinning, for example, if you do it at high intensity, you, the blood sugar goes up. So in that situation, I actually, um, having, have had a lot of trial and error. I know if I'm doing, let's say weightlifting, I actually give insulin before. Um, to prevent the high, because I know if I go into that with a sugar of seven, I'll know I'll go to 13, 14 if I don't. So I know for me, I need to give two, three units of rapid insulin uh, to go through the workout. And then later on, I might have a low. So I'll make sure I eat after the workout. 
Okay. Um, another question from Katie. Can you elaborate on um, that hope for a cure? Um, in, in other words, new research. What is the newest research um, telling us? Sure. So, um, so Dr. David Thompson and myself have been working on a stem cell trial for type 1 diabetes. It's been actually going on since 2016. Um, so uh, the initial trial was done in San Diego, um, and that's to um, basically inject stem cells that will become pancreatic beta cells. So those are the cells that produce insulin. And it's been successful. So they actually become beta cells. They make insulin. So you become basically free uh, of um, needing insulin. The problem with them uh, has been that the uh, autoimmune process that caused the diabetes to begin with um, will still attack those cells and over time destroy them. So the newest technology is to actually coat those cells with things that the, uh, the antibodies can't attack. Um, so, you know, from the, the way things are going now, uh, the, the hope would be to be able to uh, have the stem cell therapy without having to immunosuppress patients afterwards. Just because the immunosuppression that's used is a little bit harsh on the body. Um, so even though you, you don't need insulin anymore, we still have to take these medications so that it doesn't, it doesn't um, come back. Um, so uh, I would say the next, the next set of trials that would happen in the next two or three years would be without immunosuppression and hoping that um, we could maintain at least years as much as we can without um, insulin. And now even if it's two, three years without insulin, and then maybe sometimes going back of needing a little bit of insulin, it's better than nothing, not just because of less injections and less insulin need, but also in terms of complications, because a lot of studies have shown that if you're able to make your own insulin, your chances of getting complications are way lower. Um, in addition to stem cell and encapsulation research, is there any other type of research going on? Uh, so there's still eyelid research going on. So the eyelid transplants are still happening everywhere. Um, so we're, we have a center in UBC. There's Edmonton is the biggest center. Uh, but there's still more research um, happening in the eyelid cell as well so that they uh, could do that with, without immune suppression as well. Now, so I would say the ultimate cure of this would be the stem cell therapy. Okay. And um, what would you, what would someone have to do to qualify for, you know, enrolling in a study like this? Um, so I think that keeps changing uh, because uh, the protocols keep changing. So the latest, um, so the protocol that was used before, uh, the immune suppression is a little strong. So if you were under 30 and you were in a reproductive age, if you're planning pregnancy, or if you're planning having children, even for men, um, uh, because it would affect um, the uh, sperm, they wouldn't qualify. Um, and then, or if they had uh, had diabetes and a lot of complications, they wouldn't qualify. So uh, now the qualifications as of the, as of the trial that's coming is that if you've um, if you're over 18, um, but you know not planning, um, you're not in a productive age. Uh, or you're, I'm sorry, you're not planning an immediate pregnancy in the first year and have no complications of diabetes. But again, that is changing. Okay, um, we have a question from Bernie. Have you tried CGM or pumping or both rather than having to do finger pricking, especially during cardio um, exercise? Yeah, I've actually tried everything. Um, so I was on um, uh, all the pumps. I've tried Omnipod, I've tried Animus, I've tried Medtronic, um, and I have also tried the CGMs, the Freestyle Libre, the G6, and the 
uh, CGM that comes with Medtronic um, and finger poking. Um, so I would say that I'm, I'm right now I, I do just the finger poking. Um, I sometimes alternate. I find the CGMs are very useful when you want to, when things are changing or that you're not really figuring out what's going on with your blood sugars because you'll be able to get a trend, you get a graph of where you're, you know, where things are not going right. Where are you under bolusing? Where's your basal needs to be adjusted? Um, uh, or if, you know, if you're, let's say if you're sick, you, things are changing, if you're traveling. So at times of change that you want to titrate, um, they, I think they come really handy. Um, uh, you know, pregnancy is another time uh, that it comes really handy. But if day-to-day -day basis, things are pretty stable, um, you're having the odd, you know, different spikes here and there, but majority of time things are good. Um, then I, I I don't mind the finger poking and I I just stick to that. So because you know I I try to have a, a lot of consistency uh, on a day to day life. I try to eat the same thing most of the time, the same amount of carbs in the day. Um, uh, stick to the same sort of exercise regime more or less. Um, so majority of the time I don't use it and I'm actually on injections. Um, but I I would say that for you know if you're having a lot of variability, it's very informative. Okay. Um, I, so a follow-up question to that. So you said you try to eat the same um, amount of carbs um, and try to keep a routine, but when you're, and not that this matters in COVID, but when you're on vacation, how do you, how are you able to maintain a routine? Uh, yeah, so no, vacation is uh, definitely an exception. Um, I would, you know, definitely I, I would have times that I eat something that I don't, I've never had before, and you're est guesstimating the carb and and mess up and have a sugar 17. It has happened, it does happen. Um, but you know, more I would say day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but you, you know, definitely, um, uh, you know, I break the routines, um, you know, sometimes even during weekends or if I'm away, um, uh, you know, that, that you have to experiment. And I always encourage my patients to do that. Um, you gotta live your life, you gotta experiment things because that one spike in the blood sugar is not what's gonna give you complication. It's all majority of the time. It's the day-to-day -day average that matters. Okay. So yeah, I would say, uh, and you learn, you, you try it and the next time you know that, um, you know, you've made a mistake and you, the more you learn about how your body responds to things, the, the better you can be at diabetes control. So it's a good thing to experiment. Definitely. Um, another question, have you tried closed looping? I have not, no. No, I, I know I have a lot of patients that do, um, but no, I have not done that. What are your thoughts about closed loop thing? Uh, I mean, I think it works well, as long as people really know what to do and how to follow it. Um, I, I have a lot of, um, uh, you know, young uh, patients with type one that, um, you know, they, they do really well um, using it. Um, I find for myself, um, I, I just, I, I thought the, the initial setup I had worked really well. I didn't really need to use the closed looping, but um, I usually just tell patients if it works for them, then I'm okay. Um, I know some endocrinologists aren't uh, okay with it, um, but uh, if I find uh, sometimes if the, if the control is um, better and you're getting um, more consistency, then, um, then I, I would usually work with my patients um, to um, use that and, and help them titrate. Okay. 
Um, I'm going to go backwards a little. Um, we have another question that was a follow-up from the stem cell um, transplantation and uh, encapsulation. How long do you think it'll be until this type of treatment and the encapsulation and transplantation becomes widely available to the public? I mean, I think it will really depend on how the next trial goes. Um, if things go as smoothly as planned, I would say in the next five to 10 years. Okay. Um, and I'm a question from Katie. Uh, this is from that she submitted. Having type one and knowing this disease, both by evidence-based knowledge and experiential knowledge, how does it affect your practice? Um, I think it has in a, in a good way um, because as, um, you know, as I said, part of the reason I went into endocrinology was, um, was that I lived with, I mean, I, I really liked it, but also have, I'm interested in type 1 diabetes. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very different experience when you're, uh, when you're, you're a patient, you're sitting in the same position at, as your patients and having had those experiences. So, you know, I hear a lot from my patients saying that, you know, I, I told my family doctor I've had a low and then they screamed at me and they're like, why did you do this? And it's just kind of the, the empathy and the understanding um, has helped me um, build a different relationship with my patients, uh, be closer to them. Uh, I think I think understanding them um, a little bit better. Um, and because I guess I, I, I know the challenges and not to say that people that don't live with it don't understand the challenges. I think it's just um, it feels different when you're when you're living with it as well. So I think it's it's helped. I actually have um, a big uh, type one practice. Um, so uh, it definitely has affected it in in a positive way. Okay. Um, have you tried different types of diets? And if so, is there one that you've stuck to, or um, what is your food regime like? Um, so, you know, I actually got very motivated by one of, um, one of the patients I saw a few years ago who has had type one since he was four, um, and, uh, very athletic, uh, very active, um, and, um, was basically, um, eating very healthy. So no restriction, uh, kind of per se, and not like making, starving himself, uh, but a very kind of a good, uh, I would say a 50% protein um, and, uh, and maybe less than 10, 15% carbohydrate and the rest, um, vegetables and fat, basically, um, a type of diet and, and then maintain that consistency with all his meals throughout the day. And so was able to really maintain a, a, a good blood sugar, you know, his blood sugar was, you know, he actually had a CGM. And when you look at a CGM, he was always between five to seven. Um, so I, I've never had, I didn't have that. So I find uh, consistency is really important. Um, as the, not to, again, not to say that you shouldn't experiment or live your life. Uh, you know, I, I would say diet um, uh, or regimes are terms that, uh, you know, imply restriction. Uh, they imply, um, uh, you know, kind of um, a change in your routine. I think uh, it shouldn't be called that. It should be something that you're you're happy with because you're going to be living like that forever. Uh, so, you know, if you're, um, if you like having um, a piece of pie at the end of the day, um, you just plan for it. You know, you plan for it calorie wise, you plan for it insulin wise, you plan for it time wise, uh, you know, how much, how long before your bedtime you're going to have it. So you don't have active insulin when you go to bed, how long you're going to do it between your dinner time and your dessert time. Uh, you just incorporate it into your life. Um, so 
Um, I would say, you know, personally, I, I think that's just my personality. I'm a, I'm, I try to keep a consistent life. So I eat pretty regularly um, and uh, I would say fairly low carbohydrate um, diet. Uh, but you know, that doesn't mean that that's the only diet. I think it's just more what works for you. And um, as I said, um, everything in diabetes control is about planning. Okay. Um, all right. A uh, question from Anne. What are your thoughts about using time in target versus A1C as a measure of blood sugar control? Um, yeah, so that's actually more and more the trend. Um, reason being that, uh, you know, A1C was sort of um, uh, invented as a, um, uh, in the beginning because all the studies were based on it and it's a good uh, average. But as you all know, um, you know, someone could have all like highs and lows and on average the a1c might seem okay um but then they if their sugars are running between three and then 15 that's not good so i would say time and target is way more important uh than a1c um at this point um and if you are uh if your time and target is good your a1c will follow uh, so if you're if you're always you know if uh, if your blood sugars are most of the time good and your a1c is not exactly 7%, but your um, time and target is where it should be, then uh, that's what we want to see in terms of uh, good diabetes control and preventing complications. Okay. Um, and a follow-up question from Anne, what are your thoughts about using SGLT2s with type 1s? Um, so, you know, there's actually a lot of evidence for it in Europe. And then recently, um, uh, they are, well, and since 2018, they've been used in type 1. I actually use it quite a bit. Um, now, um, you know, it's just sort of the problem, the reason that there was a lot of hesitancy uh, is because of a condition called diabetic um, uh, euglycemic ketosis. So that's if you are uh, not giving your insulin or if you're sick, you could still make ketones, but your blood sugar will be falsely low because of this medication. So some patients got into trouble doing that because let's say they were sick, they had ketones, they went to the hospital, but their blood sugar was only 11, 12 because of the SGLT2. So then they weren't treated as a DKA and that was a problem. Um, but so, but you know, I think a lot of patients, I tell them about that. I tell them that if you're sick, don't take it. Um, if you're, if you're somewhere that's very warm, you're going to be dehydrated, don't take it. Um, but if they know about it, um, it actually works, reduce your insulin doses. Uh, and also prevents um, big spikes after after meals. So um, if if used in the right combination, it actually works well. Okay. And um, do you use the pump or MDI, and why? Uh, so I use MDI now. Uh, I have tried all the pumps before. Uh, personally, um, uh, so as I said, I'm, I'm fairly active. Um, I'm a runner, and um, I just didn't. Uh, like having the pump on me when I was running. Um, the, the control I find was uh, very good with MDI. So um, then I, I just switched back to that and um, I'm happy with that. But um, you know, there's definitely advantages to being on the pump that you can't get with MDI, uh, but it doesn't mean that you can't have good control with MDI either. Okay, and can you see yourself changing back to the pump at some point later on in your life? I mean, so you, obviously you would use the pump at some point, and does that change based on what's going on for you? Um, so, so, I mean, I think one of the uh, places that I would maybe consider, because as I said, right now, uh, my um, lifestyle and what I eat is very consistent. So 
a pregnancy would be time that I would definitely consider going on pump because you know the hormones are changing, um, your diet changes, your consumption of carbohydrate changes, um, you become more insulin resistant at times. So uh, then the pump gives you a lot more flexibility that you can't really get with injections. Um, and also the targets uh, of blood sugars during pregnancy are very, very tight. Um, and it's, it's sometimes hard to achieve that with MDI. So that would be the time um, that I, I might consider switching. And do you have any preferences with regard to pumps? Have you tried different pumps? And you know, if you were to be on a pump, do you have a preference of which one? Uh, so I have tried Animus, Omnipod, and Medtronic. Um, I, I think all of them were were different they had different good things and bad things uh i personally liked the omnipod because it was tubeless um and then the one thing that i you know always kind of um was frustrated with the tubes is you know again running or doing active sports it kind of start you get yank on things or um you know it was hard to sort of um manage the tubing and i didn't have that with omnipod so i thought that worked well for me okay um another follow-up from the time and target what setting do you recommend for time and target for the low and high measurement? And what percentage would you like to see um, a patient in range? Um, so that the, the actual target really depends on um, the patient. Um, so for example, if I'm seeing a patient who has really, really high blood sugars all the time, who's been diagnosed recently, uh, then I wouldn't set it at a, tar at a low target because I want to kind of slowly lower that target. So for that person, I might even let their targets be between 10 to 12 or 10 to 13, um, because if they're used to blood sugar of 20, then a blood sugar of 10 will feel like a low to them. They'll feel unwell. Whereas if someone is, you know, really pretty, pretty well controlled and, and has had diabetes for some time, they know uh, the carb counting and all that, then I would even set it as something as 3.8 or 3.8 to 7, um, uh, that, you know, kind of um, giving that aggressive sort of tight uh, part of the low um, so that, um, uh, you know, knowing that uh, the glycemic control is going to be tighter. Um, so it, re it really varies on, um, on, a, on a patient to patient basis. Uh, for example, another situation is if someone doesn't uh, feel their lows, uh, so they have hypoglycemia unawareness, then, then we might raise that target uh, to maybe five instead of 3.8 so that they, they, they kind of don't go that low um, and we eliminate it for, for some time. Um, and in terms of percentage, um, uh, so, you know, again, if you're a new person on the pump, initially it's, it's sort of work in progress. So initially anything above 70% is perfect. Uh, but then over time, we want to try to see 80%. If you get yourself to 85, 90%, then that's excellent time and target. Okay. Um, another follow-up from the SGLTs. How long does it take for SGLTs to clear your system? For example, you're sick, so stop taking them. How long after would um, your blood sugars better correlate with ketone production? Uh, so usually a day or two. Uh, most people, I would say by day two of not taking it, the blood sugars will start uh, spiking as they would if you were off the SGLT2. Um, so that's why if you're noticing that you're coming on, coming on with coming off with a cold or you're getting sick, um, we recommend to stop it right away. Okay. Um, what about targets for after meal, for example, two hours post meal? Um, so again, if you want to be aggressive, uh, ideally less than eight. Um, but you know, sometimes 
sometimes depending on the age, depending on um, how aggressive we want to be for the person, um, you know, it could be also less than 10. In general, we want to try to keep values in the single digits because we know that when blood sugars go above 12, that's when they start affecting the kidneys, the eyes, and the organs. So we want to, and I'm talking about two-hour posts, right? So if you're spiking to uh, 13, 14, half an hour after you had a dessert, that's not you know, considered not a target. It's more once blood sugar stabilized, which is the two hours after, um, you want to be um, you want to be ideally less than eight, and um, again, if comorbidities or if on, on hypoglycemia unawareness less than ten. Okay, um, I have a question from Jacob. A follow up on the MDI discussion. What are the concerns with frequent injections in scar tissue and lipo um, uh, lipotropy, hyperlipotropy? Um, so yeah, so the the concern it does. Um, the more you inject at a spot, um, the more concerned that that will happen. Um, now that's, uh, you know, that is a little bit genetics as well. So uh, it's been shown that some people just make scar tissue and develop lipodystrophy more than others. Um, um, there isn't really uh, a correlation between the type of insulin you use. Uh, so now the, the, the type of insulin that was used in the, in the past, which was pork insulin, bovine insulin, which is no longer really used, those were associated with more scar tissue, but th th those are almost unavailable. Um, but if, uh, you know, the, again, recommendations to change the sites of your injection as much as you can, uh, give that part a rest, um, uh, because, you know, if it does develop after a while, you know, it, it, there's different degrees. So if it's a mild, it might go away, but if it gets ignored and gets really severe, you might even require surgical removal of that part of tissue. Um, uh, so it could become pretty severe if ignored. Okay, and a follow-up again from Jacob. Do you get different absorptions based on the time of day, area, et cetera? How do you try and plan around this? Um, so the, the absorptions, uh, so in general, um, the arm uh, and the stomach area are the fastest areas of absorption. The buttocks and the legs are usually the slowest absorption. Um, so basal insulin, uh, which is the long-acting insulin, is usually given in the buttocks or the, uh, the thigh area. And then the fast acting could be the flanks, the stomach, or the arm. Um, however, that being said, if you were to give yourself a fast acting insulin in your legs and then go for a run, that's going to get absorbed really fast because you're running and you're using that, uh, your, your muscles are burning and you're going to use up the insulin faster. Now, time of day, um, most people are most insulin resistant in the morning when they first wake up because their cortisol and their growth hormone is at its highest. So usually most people need a little bit more insulin in the morning. Um, and then as the day goes by, it gets less. And now if you're more active during the day, also you, you're, you're, you're less insulin resistant. Um, heat really affects insulin absorption. So if you're in a warm climate, um, if the sunny sun and heat activates insulin faster, so you might Insulin might start working in 10 minutes rather than 20 minutes. So uh, people sometimes notice if they're on a beach vacation, they might notice uh, that they go low faster or, or right after a meal that they didn't before because of the effect of the heat. Um, so those are um, some of the things to, to think about. Okay. Um, I want to remind people it's 6.51. So we have about nine minutes left because Dr. Musavi needs to leave at seven. So if you have questions, again, go ahead and submit to the chat box or to... Um, Soraya. Um, and while people are submitting questions, I'll just ask you, um, Dr. Masabi, 
when everything with COVID started, as a person with type one, how were you feeling? How did you react? And um, are there any recommendations or advice you'd give people um, with type one during the COVID crisis, even about anxiety and whether we should be anxious? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, for sure. I mean, it was um, definitely anxiety provoking for everybody. Um, I think the common questions I got from my patients was, you know, a lot of patients who had problems, um, you know, in the, from China or from Korea, were that they were patients with diabetes. So people were really scared about that. Um, but what we know so far, recommendations are that uh, people with diabetes are not at higher risk of um, getting COVID. Um, is that if you know if they do get COVID exposure, the risk of developing complications of the infection, for example, pneumonia and all that, is a bit higher. And the the more poorly controlled they are, the higher the blood sugars, the higher the chance. And that goes for any other illness too. So if someone has diabetes and gets any kind of influenza, uh, their chances of getting sicker is is more. Uh, so that's um, that's sort of been the the recommendation. So it seems like all the data that's coming out is on people with type 2. So do all the results pretty much apply to people with type 1 in terms of um, when the prognosis is worse, if you're poorly controlled, it doesn't matter if you're type 1 or type 2, it's the same. Yeah, it should technically apply. I think the I think it's a little bit um, skewed towards type 2 because uh, they tend to be older population. There's a lot of type 1s that are younger. Um, and then, you know, sometimes comorbidities. So if they have type 2 diabetes and they already have uh, heart disease and, you know, lung injury, or if they have um, kidney problems, so then their chances of having problems or complications with COVID is higher. Uh, but that's not to say that someone with type 1 is less likely to have those things. Um, it's it's uh, the same, same kind of risk. Okay. Um, from Alan, I live in a smaller community that has no endocrinologist, and I was wondering if there is a solution similar to virtual GP visits for endocrinology. So, for example, could someone see you who lives in Kelowna? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I do virtual consults uh, all the time. Uh, so, and usually once, um, so the, the, we all work by referrals. So uh, if you ask your uh, GP to refer you to to an endocrinologist. Most of my colleagues do that as well. So we organize um, a virtual session. Uh, and then, you know, if um, my patients plan to, let's say, come into, uh, uh, so my, my office is in North Vancouver. If they come into Vancouver, then we'll organize an in-person visit too. Um, but, you know, actually with the whole COVID things, this has also been even more of a case because now we're doing majority of our um, consults virtually. So uh, I've been chatting with patients with type 1 diabetes, and then consulting them and, and, uh, and uh, you know, helping them titrate their insulin. It's, you know, we, we don't get to really, you know, touch them and do a physical exam, but um, at least we could help them um, uh, kind of manage their diabetes during this time. So, yeah, absolutely, virtual is, is definitely an option. Okay. Um, this is from an anonymous source. How do you keep yourself healthy with your mental health and your emotional health? Um, so I think a lot of it is, um, uh, you know, support is a big thing. Uh, so I think seeking support from people that you know that care about you. So I'm, I'm lucky I have very supportive uh, uh, family and friends. Uh, uh, so, you know, sometimes, you know, we all need to vent to them. And, uh, and I do, and that helps. Um, I think keeping active is, is definitely important uh, because it's uh, one of the only things you do for yourself um, that, that's, you know, 
uh, that you're when you're exercising on your um, you're, you're you know you're doing something really good and positive for your for yourself so um, that really helps me mentally it's sort of for me it's like meditation um, it starts off the day with a uh, uh, with a good positive energy uh, and you know and, and not to say that that I don't have low points I, um, I definitely do you know there's uh, times that you get really overwhelmed and frustrated and sad about things and um, uh, you just have to um, sort of really feel all those things and uh, really kind of be insightful about why you're feeling them and how to best deal with them um, and what other people around you are dealing with that could be similar uh, and um, and then yeah and then you just sort of uh, stay positive and the next day is a new day. Yeah, I would agree um, what you just said about it's okay to feel those ways and, and it's accepting those feelings. Um, mm -hmm. Only when you accept those feelings can you figure out what's the best way to deal with them as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to avoid um, those feelings. Um, we have a question from Maureen. Um, you raised your hand. Maureen, did you want to unmute and ask a question? Um, wait a sec. Yeah, I, I just was just wondering what an SO what the SLG2 was because I didn't know what they were, but I just Googled it. Okay. <laughs> All right. <Okay. laughs> um, I have another question. Um, speaking, um, this will probably be the last question. Speaking of insulin resistance, do you have any tips for decreasing morning insulin resistance in the morning? Um, I have a hard time eating any carbs at all in the morning, even if I pre-bolus before breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, so in people on the pump tend to deal with this a bit better than on injection. So that's one of the advantages of being on the pump because you could actually set your pump to give you more basal during that time that you're most insulin resistant. Um, you know, if you're not on the pump, then um, so I find sometimes it helps to give the long acting insulin at bedtime because even though um, long acting insulin is 24 hours, um, it actually gives this first initial kick in the first 12 hours. So if you're having trouble in the morning, if you give it at bedtime, then more chances that, you know, it'll help in the morning to bring, bring the blood sugars down. Um, uh, also insulin resistance uh, is uh, very much dependent on activity levels. So if you tend to do activities in the evening, the night before and have lighter meals the night before the, the body's, the, the liver response and the body's response in the morning uh, is, um, is better. And one of the other things that I've noticed personally, and I tell my patients, this is caffeine. And so, so coffee, even if you don't put any cream, any sugar will raise your blood sugar in the morning. So I have patients that tell me they have just a cup of coffee and the sugar just suddenly goes up for no reason. And is anything that stimulates your, you know, kind of um, increases your cortisol will increase your blood sugar as well. So sometimes you have to account for that if you're just having a cup of coffee or, or strong tea. Okay, great. Um, any other questions? Um, we have about two minutes left. I want to thank you, Dr. Musavi, for carving out time to spend it with the huddle. Um, I think it's great to have someone like you who obviously is so knowledgeable medically, but really understands personally what it's like. Um, and I think just, you know, I know you as a friend, you're a very approachable down to earth person. And so it's really wonderful to have someone like you to ask these questions. Um, Cause I think um, at times patients do feel, or people do feel a little bit intimidated. Um, so thank you again for taking an hour of your time tonight um, for talking with us. Thank you. All right. So um, those of you who wanted to stay after, feel free to. Hey, Jerry, is yours? Yeah, you can stay after. All right. Thanks, Dr. Musavi. Bye-bye. Sure. Bye.
Um, yeah, so those of you who wanted to stay after to talk about anything, happy to um, field questions. Um, if you have clinical questions or medical questions, Jerry's on the line. Um, Jerry, our best nurse educator. Um, if you want to talk about other mental health issues, um, coping issues, I'm happy to talk. Or if you guys want to just do kind of a um, traditional huddle session, happy again, just raise your hand and I'll call on you because I can see your names. Okay, anyone? Okay, you don't have to. We just want, I wanted to make sure we had um, offered some time afterwards, um, like we did last week. So again, if you have any questions, clinical medical questions, and you want to ask, Jerry is here and she's happy to answer. Um, again, if you have lifestyle questions, mental health questions, just want to talk about how things have been going um, for the past three weeks. Okay, Bert, uh, yeah, hold on. Uh, Bernie, you cannot, do you want to unmute? Bernie, can you unmute? Oh. Sorry, I was trying to figure it out. Oh, no worries. Uh, my, actually, my question is for you, Dr. Tang. Um, I sent it to uh, Soraya. Um, uh, she, the, the previous doctor, Musavi, she mentioned something about uh, studies. Are there any uh, new studies looking for uh, candidates that a guy who's 55 and 35 years diagnosed now this spring um, could be a suitable candidate for? There are a lot of studies going on in the division. Um, Jerry actually works with Dr. Tom Elliott, and he's involved in probably at least five or six different clinical trials. So um, Jerry, do you have some um, clinical trials that uh, Bernie, um, given his demographics, happens to be a good fit for? The, Dr. Elliott, Tom Elliott, has a number of them going on and a number coming up. Um, I would go on www.bcdiabetes and look at his clinical trials. If there's nothing that seems to be directly for you, Bernie, you can also call the office. Um, Marla Indesil is the research director, and she might know of something that is coming available. Yeah, and Bernie, um, if you want to just give me your, um, you know, stats of your age and everything, I can just send it to everyone in the division. Um, there are several, uh, uh, there are several faculty who are conducting studies um, and focus on very different things, some bone health, some thyroid, um, but, you know, I think there's a lot on diabetes. So if you just send me your background, I can send it to everyone and just say, here's someone interested in being involved in research. If they fit your criteria, happy to have them contact you. I did the islet cell back in 2004, but uh, the, and the uh, immunosuppressants weren't for me. So I gave it up, but, but yeah. I, I had faith in it, but uh, I had to give it up after about a year. Bernie, I want to thank you for your, your interest in it. It, it really takes some bravery and, and it takes a lot of time. And, and as a mother of someone who lived with diabetes and as a nurse, I do thank you. So how has everyone been doing for the past three or four weeks? Um, I know some of you um, actually are not allowed to go to work and, and working from home. Some people may be still allowed to go into their buildings, but just wondering how things are going because it's really tough uh, isolating. Um, there's a lot of things that change. Um, eating totally, I, 
I mean, maybe just for me, but I feel like eating um, habits, exercising has totally changed in the sense that there are no gyms open. You got to be really um, a little bit more creative. So um, is anyone experiencing those types of things? And does anyone have any, I guess, tips to share? Loneliness is for sure for me because my kids can't even come over to see me. Um, but exercise has increased because I have a neighbor upstairs who works in the day. She's still able to work. So I take her dog out every day. It's best dog ever. And so, because I don't have any, uh, any pets. So that, but loneliness for sure. And my own parents are scared to see me and my sister, we, we, we do grocery shopping, but that's it. I mean, I don't have any fear of catching COVID. Uh, I, I don't think I'm in the worst position, to be honest. Uh, like Dr. Musavi mentioned, there should be no reason that you'd be more susceptible, but the loneliness amongst all my friends seems to be the number one thing. So what have you done to try to stay connected? Video chats, lots of video <laughs> chats with my kids, uh, even with my parents, even though they're 80 years old, uh, they're getting the hang of it and uh, it helped them communicate with their family back at home in Italy. So it's not bad. Okay, so like you, even though there, there is obvious loneliness, you've been able to kind of um, modify things by using Zoom and other platforms um, to talk. Um, anything else like creative? I, I mean, I know people are doing dinner parties on Zoom, playing games on Zoom, um, just seeing what other people are doing. have Easter or Passover on Zoom? Katie, I see you nodding. <laughs> How was it? Um, it was a bit chaotic. <laughs> we we have a very large family and uh, we were all on there and there's a lot of kids and uh, there was not any kind of muting going on everyone was talking all at once but we all tried to be eating at the same time and uh, it was interesting but definitely missing seeing everyone in person yeah um what is it like having kids with like <laughs> like in the sense that like what are you telling them because i feel like a lot of things um you know you want your kids not to be scared but you also want them to um know that this is a serious situation so what how have you negotiated this whole um situation with your kids yeah it's hard um we're also in the process of having to help him with homeschooling as well um but uh you know, you try and explain it, but he, he definitely, he's a very sensitive child, so he definitely has some, some concerns that usually come up right when he's supposed to be going to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I've been seeing a lot more resources for kids, like um, certain meditation um, uh, just developed for kids. Hey, is that him? <laughs> he hears me talking about him. Uh, anyone else? Does anyone else want to share? This is definitely the time if you're feeling isolated to just, you know, I think of this as a family. I like to see you guys in person more, but, you know, Zoom is if that's our best option. <laughs> Joyce? Oh, no, uh, Carol. Carol. Yeah. Hi. Hi um, I just noticed because I'm not um, walking, walking to the SkyTrain anymore. So I'm getting less exercise and I'm not forcing myself out every day to walk. So I'm mad at myself. Um, and also because I'm home, the kitchen is right there and I'm working right here. <laughs> it's too close. <laughs> so I tend to nibble a lot more. So, 
And so with the exercise, what's keeping you from going outside and taking a walk? I know you're saying that you're not doing just, it. Just cause, just cause. I mean, I, I am walking it and um, I live on Royal Oak Hill going down to Marine. So no matter which way, I'm going to get exercise either going downhill or uphill one way. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I just, just can't force, I just not forcing myself out there but, um, and not going to my run club. Um, but I am staying connected because I've been working from home for four weeks now since March 16th. Um, and I can connect directly to my computer at work so I can do my normal work. Um, we have meetings on Zoom and Skype, and someone in my office organized a three o'clock coffee Skype every day. So if you yeah. want to call in on Skype for coffee, we just chat. <laughs> Not about work. <laughs> Usually about jigsaw puzzles. Any, um, tips about staying motivated with exercise. Again, I know this is actually hard because I think a lot of people do belong to gyms, and now that they're closed. Um, you know, I certainly am not someone who liked to run outside, and I kind of had to be forced to do it, but um, are there any creative things you're doing to make sure you get your exercise that you weren't doing before? Katie? Um, so what I was doing, I live down at the New West Keys, so we have a boardwalk, and the challenge for me now that my son is home was um, getting out, but also getting him out. Um, so we were doing, he would ride his bike, and I would run um, and that way we could keep a, a decent pace going and it was working however this weekend they've now closed the boardwalk to um, cyclists so we're trying to figure out if kids are included in that as well and we're, we're, we're worried that maybe the boardwalk will close altogether and that's our backyard so that's a challenge it's not a solution I'm sorry <laughs> Wait, but when that happens, do you have an anticipated solution? Um, I mean, we can go on the roads, right? It's a little more challenging, um, and that's what we will do. Uh, or I'll just, um, I'll have to get up earlier and go by myself. Okay. So what I do know is people are um, hosting free exercise sessions that they did on Zoom. Um, if you like, we can get, you know, um, our research team to make a list of all the free exercise sessions that people are leading and they go, uh, they range from yoga, meditation to probably more high impact type of exercises. But I'm, you know, again, I'm not sure if um, par participating in like a Zoom exercise session would be something that you'd be interested in, but we're happy to, you know, collect all those resources and see. Um, so I'm involved in different research. I'm involved in um, diabetes prevention for little kids, um, South Asian kids. So uh, for that, one of our projects, we developed these Bhangra dance tapes. And Bhangra is like Bollywood aerobics. Um, and so we have, you know, six of these 30-minute um, tapes of, uh, of, you know, instructors and little kids, like eight-year-old kids learning different moves. And I know it sounds funny, but uh, my husband and I have been doing that just because it's, you know, it's something to move and like, it, it's really high energy. But um, again, I would have never done that, um, do it myself if this hadn't, you know, happened. So that's one thing I would say I definitely move towards um, doing things online or um, those types of uh, sessions that I wouldn't have before. Anyone else have any recommendations of something they've, they've done online or they, they've used that 
is interesting that Carol Carol might be interested in because you really can't walk with friends because I was gonna say do you you know you can't really ask a neighbor to walk because you're social distancing but you can do social distancing workouts right like I mean, do you have any recommendations of any workouts um, like my brother and I are both seeing the same kinesiologist and she's meeting us at a tennis court and we're doing like a social distancing workout for an hour and I just bring like my little weights and a, one of those bands mm -hmm. and she hosts the workout and she tells us what to do and we kind of get to like hang out a bit that way too because we're not really seeing each other so right. yeah it's good that sounds great yeah so it's, it's just the three of you oh, your instructor you and your brother yeah, but we're lucky because she's a kinesiologist, right? Right. So um, this is to do with an ICBC claim that happened before I got diagnosed, which is still going on. So we, we have it covered, but I get you could do it without a kinesiologist, uh, just social distancing workout mm -hmm. outside. It's nice to get out and be with people. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think going outside once a day is so important just to smell the fresh air, be in the fresh air, because you can easily just um, stay indoors because it's, you know, I mean, easiest. Yeah. It, it is what it is. Like, it's just so easy to, yeah. Um, but even going to the grocery store and making sure you're safe and washing your hands, but even that, going to the grocery store once a day is a routine it's something you look forward to that gets you out oh I find the opposite with grocery shopping it's been stressing me out like I don't like it just um, is it because of the crowds or like the potential dangers of yeah all of it it's just it's just weird it's just strange and I prefer to go like to small local places that have not as many people yeah. but yeah, it's it's just odd times right now. <laughs> so, um, you know, in our face-to-face -face groups, I usually ask each person to answer a question. So I am going to, again, attempt this, and, and it'll be an easy question. But um, And it's a question that I actually asked um, a bunch of my med students. Since COVID started, what's one thing you found yourself doing to make sure you weren't dying of boredom? Again, it, it doesn't have to be exercise, but what's one thing um, or, or one thing you never did before this all started. And I will start saying, um, so Jerry, you have told me that the importance of washing hands and how long you have to wash your hands and you had recommended singing happy birthday twice. And so I tried doing that, but it's just not really interesting to me. So then I decided, you know what, I'm going to pick a song that I like. Um, and so I picked, um, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. So every time I wash my hands, I just say, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Only hippopotamus will do. I don't want a doll. And, and it lasts actually 24 seconds. So that is something I would have never done had the situation never emerged. <laughs> That's cute. But no, really, it's like I didn't know the song as well, also, but I would sing it and sing it just to make sure I finished it. And it was always over 24 seconds, but it's, I don't know, it's just something that's a little bit playful to do, but also making sure you're doing what you're supposed to. Anyone else willing to just raise their hand and say just one thing that they've done to make sure that they stay not bored? Nikki? Super uh, Nintendo. 
Oh, I've Nintendo? Been, yeah, I've been playing my Nintendo more. Okay. Alan, Roy, Pam, Bruce, anyone? Uh, well, I think for myself, the only thing I can think of, um, I never really did it before. My wife always did it, but gardening. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we actually went to the nursery on the weekend and uh, learned about a bunch, bunch of different plants, and we started putting them all in. Like I said, I never did this before. I could have uh, left it always to my wife to do that. So. Yeah, and um, what? how crowded is it at the nursery? It wasn't too bad. We went early morning, um, and there wasn't too many people around, so actually it was uh, quite nice. I heard later in the day it got pretty crazy because a lot of people have the same uh, same thought that they wanted to start putting their gardens in, I guess. Okay, and so what is one thing that you planted? Uh, like, oh, you're gonna test me now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, are you like a flowers person or like a vegetable? Uh, well, we, yeah. So we live in um we live in an area that's um very hot during the summer, so hot and dry. Uh, so in, in the interior of BC, um, so we, we always go with drought resistant, um, type of plants. So we bought a bunch of those, um, type of things. Um, so like winter heather, those kind of type of plants that require little water. And I guess the one good thing is little maintenance as well. Okay. Anyone else? I've been doing a lot of binge watching. So that's why I'm happy to pick them oh, all up for a walk. Yes. So, um, top two favorite shows that you've watched? Uh, Ozark. I, I have to start season three. It just came out. And uh, Tiger King, stupidest show ever, but I, I couldn't stop watching it. But why is everyone so obsessed? You're right, though. Like, it doesn't matter how old you are, young you are, what background you're from. Everyone is obsessed with the Tiger King. It's just it's amazing how stupid somebody could be. I guess that's the word I'm going to use and how self-centered. Uh, you got to watch it. Uh, you know, it's well done. I have to admit, it's well done. Yeah, no, no. I saw the first episode, and I, I was, you know, definitely amazed. It gets better. <laughs> Ozark is addicting, though. Yeah, Ozark is good. Ozark's very good. Yeah. Hey, Jerry, I actually have a question from Roy. It, um, it says, could you please explain what glucose toxicity is in a recently diagnosed T1E? I have heard that term before, um, and, and I believe that's when you're starting to go into ketoacidosis because your sugars are so high that you're unable to use them and you start burning off ketones. But um, glucose toxicity, I haven't, you don't see that as a diagnosis very often. Um, but usually it's when they're going into ketoacidosis and they need an ICU. Okay. Any um, other I'll, I'll just jump in. Yeah, the, the reason I bring it up is that it's been a little bit hard for, for me to be diagnosed. Um, I keep getting the determination that's T1D or type 1, but um, the endocrinologist I've seen here in the interior said that in his report that there was a chance that um, it might be due to toxo like toxicity, glucose toxicity, that my C-peptide levels were so low in my initial testing. So I'm just curious what that 
uh, what actually that means. It doesn't sound parallel to what you're describing, so I don't know if that's just like my just like not understanding it, or I mean, Doctor Doctor Tang, have you heard of that before? To uh, glucose toxicity? I haven't. No. Okay. I have, and and just now I did a a very minor search, and it's insulin is very effective. It sounds like you're beta cells aren't making very much insulin. Well, that's just it. Yeah. So I was, when I was, I've done two C-peptide tests, one initially, and then one as a, with the glucose stimulus where you're doing 75 milligrams of sugar, I guess, or grams of sugar. I mean, I can't remember. Um, and both numbers, like the fasting one was below the threshold. So I was like basically saying, I'm not producing any um, insulin. And then the second one was just inside the normal range when it was completely stimulated. So I've had another C-peptide test done actually just uh, last week. So I'm really curious to see because now, you know, when I presented with this, I was having an A1C over 10%, nearly 11% or something. And now the A1Cs came back at like 5.5. So, I mean, I have changed my diet quite a bit and I've been exercising a lot, but the numbers are looking really, really good. So, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of a hope for me in the sense that I'm always curious if there's any chance this could be type two and that I'll find that, you know, so when I see something like that from an endocrinologist, I'm just wondering if somebody could explain it. So I, I, I'll be talking to him again. So I guess that'll be who I ask. Dr. Elliot is looking at the various types of diabetes. And I suspect that you will be told that you're a type that doesn't actually have a name yet. Right. You realize that, there used to be basically two types and then they kind of tacked on gestational into that. But we really know now type one is a variety of different types. Yeah. Um, and you may find that you'll be given a name within a few years that doesn't really include glucose toxicity. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's something more. Uh, and the reason that they need to tease all of these names out is because one or two um, treatments isn't enough. It, it's kind of a one size fits all, and we know how well that works. So that right. when you get a diagnosis, we'll know exactly what treatment. With people's toxicity, insulin seems to be the only thing, but maybe if we know what type you have, maybe the SGLT2s where it creams off the extra sugars would be helpful for you as well. Right now, we don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that was the first time I've heard that term, and I was doing the same thing, a little Googling while we were in the meeting here, and <clears throat> could be interesting, yeah. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that, you know, I've heard the word LADA used a lot, but then once you come up here to Canada, it's like LADA is sort of this taboo thing where they're not trying to use it as much either, so it's, it's confusing. It's just all very confusing to me. So it's only been a few months, you know, so. It depends which area you're in, so that if you're in an area where the teaching hospital used LADA, you'll find that it's used quite a lot, whereas you come to see where uh, UBC never uses it, so the physicians coming out don't use LADA. I see. Um, yeah, it depends. Uh, and there's a lot of different terminology that really, it's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, let me ask everyone, so, since you're here, um, what, other, um, what other types of guests or uh, topics would you all be interested in talking about in the, you know, in the next huddles? 
So mm -hmm. I had asked, I invited Dr. Musabi because everyone had said that it would be great to talk to someone who um, has type 1, but is also a health expert in type 1. Um, we had um, uh, Dr. Clayton come because he is an expert in physical activity and exercise. Um, but what other topics um, would you all be interested in having guests? How, how about a nutritionist? I mean, I'm very curious about, you know, it seems to be there's another big, you know, large difference in what people recommend in terms of diet. So somebody who really has studied that thoroughly would be fascinating okay yeah so we can bring um we can bring a dietitian in a diabetes educator with a specialization in nutrition okay any other topics i actually had one i wanted to bring up which was i've been trying to find anybody that knows anything about strategies for the aging and type ones um i don't know if Sorry? you read anything from strategy and aging okay yep okay. Uh, I know that they're supposed to be working on one in DC, but I've never seen anything about it. So someone who is an expert in aging issues or um, type one in the geriatric population, is that what you're interested in? No, specifically type one diabetes in aging. Oh, type, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I know someone who is um, an expert in that, Grady Maniel, maybe, right, Jerry? Okay. That's if it's of interest, it's yeah, interest so for me. We can, um, we can do a special topics where um, if you know it's a special topic where people who are not interested in it don't have to sign up. But um, I think it's very important to be able to offer the different you know topics that people want. Um, but thanks for letting me know. Please. Anything else? Yes, there was one other thing that sure. sort of associated with it. It has to do with the exercise and the fact that the. COVID-19 and what it's done for me is that I exercise because I have to be able to keep walking. I can't go for a walk because I can't go very far. So the COVID-19 has shut down the YMCA, so I can't go there anymore. Right. It's shut down everywhere, and I can't even participate in the hospital now for therapy. So I was wondering if anybody ever knew anywhere that you could find some equipment that like I, i'm willing to walk in the store and see if i can rent that for an hour like because there's no i have to exercise otherwise i can't walk i'm at the point right now where i'm not walking and that's just because i can't find any equipment to exercise with. Um, so i do know at least in vancouver um they're renting out um spin spin uh companies whatever they're they're renting out their bikes um, for people. I do know that that's happening. I'm not sure about other um, fitness centers like Steve Nash, whether they're renting out their equipment. Um, but what about um, doing um, sessions online? You know, where they, they have the- I walking. have those. Okay. I have, to what extent? I have the aerobic stuff and everything. It's the legs. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, just to be specific, it's the legs very long-term neuropathy patient okay and if i don't run the legs on like a recumbent bike or in the pool i just don't walk after a couple of days i have to do it regularly and it's a very difficult thing to be able to do right now um and basically you end up to the point where uh you're just not mobilizing very well at all um, and you're not 
You're not able to walk outside? Short distance. Okay. But I couldn't like go around the block or something like that. It's just not going to happen. But it's a different thing after by aging. It's, the neuropathy can really take over. And when it shuts down your muscle, instead of it just doing it gradually, it does it very quickly. And uh, there's nothing you can do about it other than to keep exercising. Yeah. So it's a kind of a strange one. That's why I didn't really bring it up before, but um, it really does boil down to uh, fitness facilities, fitness classes, uh, the ones that I belong to quite a few years, and go into four or five years, that nobody can come up with a solution of what can you do because there's nothing available to work on. Like even a stationary bike. It's not the greatest one for me because I have a back problem as well, but um, it would help the leg. And uh, recumbent's the best for me just because I have the neuropathy through the legs very bad, but I also have it up in my back and my shoulders and whatnot. So certain muscles there get helped with uh, about three, three times a week, uh, spend an hour on the bike each time. Uh, but it really keeps me moving. Generally keeps me moving. Um, you know what? Let me ask Dr. Clayton about that because he, um, he, he um, uh, specializes in exercise. And, um, and uh, you know, we can ask him about the neuropathy question. Um, so we're coming on 7.30, so we're going to close out. But um, if you have any other comments, any other suggestions for um, the next model, please just email us. Uh, and let me know, um, but we're definitely, Roy will definitely um, talk to a dietitian and see if we can have a dietitian for the next, for the May huddle. Um, and again, if anyone else wants to um, make a suggestion, happy to take the suggestion. Um, yeah, Nikki? I just wanted to say that it was amazing having Mandana, an yeah. endocrinologist, yeah. She's great. Yeah, she's so great and just, hearing from a specialist that also has type one was super cool. Okay. And I mean, but would you like to hear from more specialists in general, even if they don't have type one? Oh yeah, of course. Okay. think It was a really good one. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, and that's why I asked. Cause I knew, um, yeah, no, I mean, I really like Madonna a lot. Um, and I do know that she's experienced everything you all talk about and that you've um, shared in group. And so I thought I'd be a great, um, a great guest speaker. Okay, yeah. well, thanks everyone. Um, we're gonna close out now, but um, see you in about a month at the next huddle. Um, and again, if you have any suggestions, please just let us know if there's anything we can do to help. Um, I am gonna have my team come up with a list of possible ways to exercise at home, you know, different videos that are free or different sessions people are hosting, because I do know for a fact that there are a lot of different yoga sessions that people are hosting, and if we can give you access, that would be great. Okay? All right, thanks, bye-bye. Thank thanks, Trisha. Bye now.